Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Movie Dicks. I'm Gabriel Chavez. And I'm Paul Schindel. Today, for our second episode, we are going to examine Midsummer. Folk horror. That's the word. <laughs> Folk horror? Yeah. I don't think I've heard that before. But we're going we're gonna to talk about this movie called Midsummer. It's a 2019 movie by Ari Aster. You may recognize his name from Hereditary. But first and foremost, this podcast is about movies. It's comedic, obviously, so we're going to make fun of something. No matter how good it is, we're still going to make fun of it. We may express views that we actually like it or whatever, but overall, every movie has its flaws. There are very few that actually don't have flaws. If you don't like that and you yeah. have fundamental... dis Transformers 3 is a flawless movie for what it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But if you don't like that and you think that uh, <laughs> movies don't have flaws or you don't like our opinion, then, you know, best of luck. Move on to something else. Listen to any other number of podcasts, but fuck off. You're only here in order to enjoy us making fun of movies. We like you being here. We appreciate you being here. And we're thankful that you're our audience. Today, we're examining 2019's Midsummer. If you don't know anything about this movie which you should probably shut it off right now because it's a spoiler alert. <laughs> a reminder, Midsummer is about an American couple headed to Sweden with a group of friends to experience a Swedish Midsummer festival. Their idyllic summer turns sinister as the festivities render their pastoral paradise into a disturbing and violent cult. It's an A24 release, which is really turning into a boutique horror studio. I don't know if you've been paying attention to these dudes, Paul, but they just keep coming out with really interesting horror movie releases, and I really dig that about them. Yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, it's the same studio which released Ari Aster's critically acclaimed first feature, Hereditary, in 2018. It stars the budding prestige film actress Florence Pugh of Greta Gerwig's Little Women fame and the upcoming now-delayed release of Marvel's Black Widow, and Jack Rayner of the excellent john carney film sing street which i don't know if you saw that paul it's the director no. of uh once and i really I can tell you that i'm so disappointed that black <laughs> widow isn't being released immediately why is scarlett johansson really going to get you through this i was being sarcastic <laughs> <laughs> jack rayner you might also know him from Catherine bigelow's criminally underwatched movie detroit i don't know if you saw that paul the director of hurt locker obviously try to avoid detroit at all costs just <laughs> You know. <laughs> even in the film world <laughs> sure thing man it's also populated by a ton of mostly unknown actors it's 148 minutes long which is really long for a fucking horror movie and it's theatrical form it's a journey it's a journey for sure i didn't sit down and watch the director's cut yet but it's 172 minutes long jesus which is fucking intense I can't imagine this movie is three hours long. Yeah, it's uh, it's already pretty long-winded and moody. You know, yeah. slow burner. I guess they could make it even slower. But I didn't <laughs> know. I wasn't aware that there was a director's cut. That's kind of fun. It was made for a production budget of nine million dollars and opened on July fifth, two thousand nineteen, at two thousand seven hundred and seven screens in the United States, which is a pretty good release, honestly, for a small yeah. ten million dollar movie. It sounds like a Bloomhouse movie right there. Yeah. Throw it at some screens. Make it cheap. <laughs> get your money you know, back. I, I will say that Jason Bloom, he knows how to get it done, man. Yeah. To his credit, like he's done some pretty great ones. Like Get Out's a fucking great movie. Yeah. And you know, I hate to keep pumping that one up because everybody always looks at <laughs> Bloom House and says, Get out, get out, get out. And like it, it is a great movie, but I mean he's done a lot of other great movies. Like recently he did a new Invisible Man remake. 
And I, I actually really, really dug that movie. Like, as, as shamed as I am to say that because I fucking hate remakes, I really did like it. I thought it was really interesting. All right. <laughs> I think that that director is pretty smart. He's the co-writer of Saw, and I never would have guessed that he was going to be like that dude. I would say if you're an aspiring filmmaker, write a horror script and Bloom will, <laughs> Bloom yes. will fund it. For sure, Keep, dude. And they don't give a shit. They, they take the shotgun approach to making movies. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when you're only putting like 10, 20 million dollars in a movie, you can make 10 of those a year. And if one of them bombs or five of them bomb, you don't really have to worry about it because the other ones are going to make it back. That being said, it opened on a little over 2,700 screens. On the opening weekend, it made $6.5 million and went on to make $27 million domestically and $19 million internationally, including a very, very modest sum of $396,000 in Sweden, which I thought it was going to be a little bit more than that. That's surprising that their whole country didn't show up for that thing. You know? Right? I mean, yeah. they shot it in Hungary, though. They didn't oh, actually well, that's shoot bullshit. it. bullshit. <laughs> Come on, man. I know. Uh, that brought its total box office numbers to $46 million worldwide. It's got a 7.1 on 135,000 votes on IMDb, a 72 on Metacritic, if you give a shit about that kind of thing, and a fucking staggering 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's rated R for disturbing ritualistic violence and grisly images, which I really like that rating descriptor, ritualistic violence. (laughs) Strong sexual content, graphic nudity, language. It's it's Just in case you're a parent and you're like, you know, I think I'm okay with ritualistic violence. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe don't, not don't. the nudity. I don't know. Yeah, maybe not the nudity. Maybe not the strong sexual content. But all that being said, you asked me last week how I felt about Star Wars, so I ask you this week about Midsummer. How did you? What was your gut reaction when you saw it? Uh, I really liked the journey that it took me on. It was kind of vague in a lot of places, but going back and thinking about it, there's a ton of foreshadowing throughout the whole movie. Oh, absolutely, and given the genre of what it is, you know what's going to happen to the characters, but they kind of put a little twist on the end. And uh, it was all about being immersed in the environment and kind of following the characters around as it spirals out of control, like any folk horror movie you go to. (laughs) It shares all those kind of things. And then at the same time, it's kind of a fucked up, twisted fairy tale kind of Disney movie. Right. There's a traumatic event at the beginning and, she becomes the princess by the end of the movie and yeah. uh, her boyfriend uh, kind of prince if you want to call it so, uh. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second because there is there is a very definite through line here that ariaster confirmed yeah i mean a lot of in a lot of ways it's like wicker man you know the foreigners come to a foreign land in a tight knit community that has all these crazy ass pagan beliefs and uh guess what they're the sacrifices or the rituals at the end of the movie that's the only problem that i have with this movie is that the entire time that i was watching it all i could think of was the wicker man and you know it's it's kind of unfair in the sense that like aristotle was saying that everything is essentially five different types of dramaturge that nothing is original everything is just a remake of a remake of a remake and a copy of a copy of a copy yeah it's kind of unfair to judge it that way because cult horror movies are a very specific subgenre. But I think that naturalistic sex cult films especially are even smaller subgenre 
Yeah. And they were all led in 1973 by The Wicker Man, which is a fucking masterpiece of filmmaking. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> what, so there's other movies that fall into this genre, like Cannibal Faroe and yeah. uh, Green Inferno. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. like the foreigners get trapped. The dumbass grad students go to study a culture and they get eaten or burned or whatever. Right, sacrifice. You know what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely falls in line with that. But inevitably, it also is sort of like a typical horror movie because it follows like the slasher subgenre, right? Like there's this virginal woman, right, that's played by Florence and like her character of Danny is like very much like a virginal woman and she's thrust into this like weird situation and everybody else around her is like this very promiscuous free drug, free society, like hippie kind of thing that was all pioneered by John Carpenter with Halloween and it's sort of like maintained that genre trope for this number of years. Yeah. It does sort of get crippled by genre tropes. To me, it's all about the journey with this movie and the atmosphere and the acting and all of that. So it's a lot of fun. So yeah. Well, not fun per se, <laughs> but <laughs> he had some good kills in there. Let's face it. If you watch this kind of movie, you might be into movie violence and you know, he had some fun things I happening mean, there. Personally, I'll just, I'll just giant mallets. <laughs> I haven't seen that one used in a while. So, so I'll just, happy. I'll just say this off the top in order to be forthright about it is that like, when it comes to horror movie violence, me, I'm about originality and like being inventive about your horror movie violence, right? Yeah. And like when it comes to ritualistic violence like this, this is the kind of shit that I like really dig, you know, because I want to see just how, for lack of a better phrase, like really just fucked up that they can make it. So that way it like can affect me, yeah. you know, and see how much they can dig yeah. on my skin. See if you can actually like feel something. Yeah. I think we've seen so many incredibly violent movies they were kind of desensitized to that kind of yeah. thing but well, uh, i mean there's some good moments in this for for sort of perspective here like there was a while in college that paul and i went on this nc-17 rated binge where we were just watching like every movie the fucking reputation you know like in one of the movies that kicked it off was caligula <laughs> so like, yeah it's such a bad movie and if you don't know about caligula you should definitely know about caligula gore vidal wrote it for christ's sake which is really fucking bizarre that he wrote it well then they threw away everything he wrote and just turned <laughs> into a porn movie <laughs> And Malcolm Malcolm McDowell is in it. Peter O'Toole is in it. Helen Mirren is fucking in it. My favorite anecdote from that movie is that Peter O'Toole, before he died anyway, because he's fucking dead now. Spoiler alert if you don't know. Peter O'Toole is dead. <laughs> but he's been dead for 11 years. He still claimed up until his death that he did not know that Caligula was a porn film. Even though the central scene that he's in is that weird, I don't know if you remember it, that bathhouse scene where there's all these women swinging around on yeah. these fucking swings. And it's, dildo. it's an orgy scene. <laughs> it's an orgy scene. Yeah. Uh, and he swore, yeah. in, to, to his death, he swore that he did not know that it was a fucking porno movie. So all that being said, this might actually really strongly affect certain people, but other people may be completely desensitized to it. I will say that it was affecting to me. Uh, there's uh, some uh, very nice emotional beats and yeah. shocking moments in the movie, and uh, I enjoyed it for that part. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say that me personally, my favorite section of this movie was actually the first 12 minutes before it got to the fucking opening credits. Because like Ari Aster, if you haven't seen his previous movie, Hereditary, you definitely should. But like the thing about Hereditary that was so interesting is it's this horror movie that's structured around this idea that family tragedy 
can actually let in like this very real sense of loss. And it's something that can erode your soul, as it were. He goes from an emotional standpoint. At the beginning of this movie, like there's this very real moment that she finds out that her sister supposedly killed herself along with her two parents. And like this very ritualistic way of starting both of the cars and putting the hoses up to the house, into the bedroom and everything like that. And she dies supposedly this way. And it's this like unbelievably honest and simple and very raw like emotional state throughout the beginning 12 minutes of this movie before you see the opening credits. Now the the imagery in that uh, scene is probably going to stick with me for a long time. <laughs> 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 that was disturbing. To be honest, you know, like I, I feel bad that I hadn't seen this movie before two weeks ago. Like it is a movie that I'm going to continue talking about. It is a movie that I'm probably going to remember in 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Are you going to tell everyone to go see it? Are you going to no, tell your mom that, to go see it? <laughs> that's actually the funny thing is that like of uh, after watching it, I haven't really texted that many people in order to watch it because it is a very specific horror movie. And of the people that yeah. I know that are film buffs, like there's only a handful that I would actually say might actually enjoy something like this. Did you uh, did you laugh at the part when uh, the uh, PhD guy got his head smashed in with that mallet? No, did that make you laugh. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that didn't that oh, didn't really I, that didn't really make me laugh per se, but like it didn't strike me as as disturbing as I thought it was going to be. I guess. I mean, I, I was expecting something really graphic there and when i knew i mean yeah because this movie the only thing that i can say about this movie see i felt the impact of that one in my like head when it came out <laughs> of like nowhere really oh yeah yeah i did for me personally there wasn't anything that was like really really viscerally affecting the only part of this movie that really really disturbed me honestly was like the clip scene right where they like when the elders jump off and that one guy like fucks it up and he's still alive they come up and they smash him with the yeah. hammer. Yeah. Those are some great makeup effects, oh, by the way, sure, with the, the crushed head. I mean, the makeup effects in this movie are pretty yeah. great. Like everything looks realistic yeah. and no CG bullshit. Yeah. None of well, I mean, did it all. none Facts that we could bullets, see. Could yeah. Well, that's the best kind of <laughs> CG right I mean, there. I'll, like, I'll say that right off the bat, like I, I could see CG in the sense of like the cliff, right? Like, cause the, the overhead bird's eye view of like the people on the edge of the cliff, like to me, I could see that that was like very obviously CG. It didn't look like a real image. Uh, it looked like a composite. Like a real cliff. Yeah, it looked yeah. like a composite. Yeah. No, I mean, they probably can't find a cliff like that in very many yeah. places. But <laughs> then again, it would look like a quarry. Maybe they just carved it out of the side of a hill for the movie you know under nine million dollar budget i honestly think that it was it was a composite shot that like the cliff was somewhere else and like the the base of the cliff was somewhere else entirely i don't think those two places existed in the same location sure but uh they did all the skull crushing and blood spurts probably practically yeah it pays off and being very uh very very yeah, effective it feel it feels real probably not a date no absolutely not. <laughs> i mean uh, <laughs> all of it i mean the central theme of the movie is a relationship falling yeah. apart and family loss yeah. and all this shit and i'm like thinking about my relationship with my wife after that i'm like oh shit am i emotionally distant <laughs> she's gonna fucking bring me to sweden and and i'm gonna end up in a bear skin burning in a shed so. <laughs> Yeah. You know, that yeah. that scene, that scene in itself was like very, very original. I feel like I hadn't seen something like that before. I don't know if this is deliberate. I haven't read anything about this with an interview with the director and I haven't listened to the audio commentary or anything like that. 
but I feel like there's this very real, like not so clever reference to the Wicker Man throughout it. Maybe. I mean, it could be that it, the Wicker Man just shares all of that pagan iconography. That could be. And, you know, there's a whole pagan theme that goes in there. You know, and, you know remote village <laughs> of weird ass pagan people living together in what looks like harmony in the yeah. beginning, but maybe. Speaking of paganism, though, naming her boyfriend Christian really fucking bothered me because like his name is Christian. He's obviously very self-centered and selfish and he goes into this like pagan ritual and like has this very standoffish attitude, but then immediately becomes like swept up in it and allows himself to be like seduced by this pagan idea and then structuring his entire character motivation upon guilt. It's one note to me. And honestly, like Jack Rayner in this movie, he annoys the fuck out of me. And I couldn't wait for his character to die because- Well, he... I think that's part of what, what why he was there. He's an annoying I mean, character. You kind of feel some sympathy for him because I think everyone has been in a relationship like that. But think about but it though. At the same time, he's you come to feel like he's an asshole and- uh, <laughs> It feels satisfying and you could smile with uh, what's her name at the end of the movie as he's burning. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, think about it, right? Here's the thing is that structuring his character like that. So much of the ending of the movie is based on the fact about where his character ends up. Right. So if you're structuring it and you're building this thing toward this big shock set piece at the end of it, by putting him in a gutted bear and burning him to death, like make me like him a little bit. So that way at least I'm connected to him. So that way, by the time it gets to that point, that I feel like some sort of shock or like dismay or something like that, that his character is in that situation. I don't know. I disagree. I think that's part of his character arc. I think he's more sympathetic in the beginning of the movie, perhaps. And then you kind of get to know him a little bit and you're like, he's kind of a shitty person. (laughs) Wait, so hold on a second. So building him as being sympathetic, I didn't buy that at all at the beginning of the movie because like, The movie makes this very big thing about like breath, right? Like people breathing and like they're, (laughs) (laughs) you want to breathe there, Paul? (laughs) But they they make like this big deal about breath, right? Throughout the movie and like people breathing in and out, like during the beginning of like a festival activity or whatever, like at the beginning she's crying and she's like laying on the couch and she's fucking bawling her eyes out as we would expect. And he's just sort of huddling over her. And he's not crying. He's not sympathetic toward her plight. And then at the end, like, we're supposed to feel something for this guy. Like, he's not sympathetic, dude. Like, he's trying to get out of the relationship at the beginning of the movie. But instead of dumping her on the side, he strings her out a little bit more, maybe. Or he tries to make it work. I don't know. He's kind of there for her. I wouldn't. Yeah, he doesn't do a very good job, obviously. But the but, movie uh, makes a big point about this breath thing because like when she when she comes to grips after she's the May Queen and she's in the like communal building or whatever and she's crying after she sees him fuck that other girl, all the women are with her and they're holding on to her and they're all crying as like a group. And she's found this community that is like really, really like clutching onto her and experience her grief with her and sort of justifying and like agreeing with that grief. I don't know. I think it's kind of a juxtaposition between Western intellectual thought and more spiritual way of thinking about things. And I think it's trying to pass a message about how shitty of a culture (laughs) we as Americans live in and how disconnected we are from our environment, our community, 
ourselves and our loved ones. Wait, so I, I don't so know. So is this is this trying to like are you saying that it's trying to like demonize like the Western Judeo-Christian belief structure and showing that like paganism is more like in sync with like humanity? <laughs> I think it's contrasting it. I mean, you have to, you know, you're sitting there watching people uh, be murdered uh, in front of you and ritual sacrifices. <laughs> and at the same time, one of the the Swedish characters is like, well, you know, we kill our elderly, but you guys kind of just leave your parents in nursing homes to die alone. <laughs> so who's, who's doing a better job of that kind of connection? I think that's... I, I want to bring this up for a second because this was something that really struck me as being something that stuck out and I wasn't able to move past this. The, the thing that stuck out to me about this is that this festival that they're attending occurs once every 90 years, right? 75. I thought it was 90. I'm pretty sure it's whatever. But even still, it's a long time. these these people that they're sacrificing, the two elder people that jump off of the top of the cliff and they smash that one guy's head in, they're both 72. So like, did they find the two 72-year-old people that were also in sync with this idea, that were also part of this cult, that were actually willing in order to be part of this fucking activity? Like, I it, it felt like such a small microcosm of a group of people that they could pull from, but they just so happen to have these 72 year olds that that's exactly the age that they're supposed to fucking throw them off the cliff. Uh, I mean, yeah, they don't have, it's probably what a hundred people in the community. I mean, their, like their yeah. bench isn't very deep in order to reach. It doesn't <laughs> necessarily mean that they're 72. They're just elderly. I thought that's and, what they said in the movie. I mean, maybe this I mean, is they me said that they, they said that no one exists outside older than 72, but you know, if a few years before that, someone hits 72, then uh, <laughs> they get, I don't know. The way I'm explaining it is that I think they have a, maybe toned down version of this festival every year where they murder anyone that's 72. Cause uh, what's his name? The made Swedish character. Pele. Pele. I mean, he says his parents died in a fire, right? So it's implied that they died in the same type of ritual that uh, <laughs> uh, the other guy did. But guess what I'm saying is they probably do a toned down version every year for the solstice where anyone who happens to get to 72 gets thrown in the, the wood shack. But they, they wait, they wait until 90 or whatever years. The, I, I think it's 90 years apart, but they wait until 90 in order to actually really do like, do like the all out like sacrifice and like human shit. That's my explanation. Maybe <laughs> it's just a plot hole. I mean, maybe you're thinking about it too hard. Gabe. All right. Know. So here's, here's the other thing that I wanted to bring up annihilation. Oh yeah. Alex Garland's flick, right? A big part of this movie that really stuck out to me that kind of like bothered me was like this whole thing about like grass like growing through her. Like every time that she does like shrooms and she has these hallucinations, she looks down at her hands or her feet and like this grass is growing through her. And then there's a whole thing about like flowers, especially when Jack Rayner runs into the murder shack, like the fucking flowers coming out of the guy's eyes and like all the flowers that they stuck in all the orifices of him. As soon as I saw it, I immediately thought of Annihilation. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, Annihilation did it better. You know, like it's fucking more disturbing. And like when Tessa Thompson's character like walks into the middle of the field and it's like growing out of her and Natalie Portman turns back and sees her. It's like this really fucking strong moment in that movie that it's like, oh my God, like this shit is 
insane. Well, I don't know. I think it's one of the the Hargrim or what's the name of the people? Oh, whatever. The villagers, <laughs> they, you know, it's part of their beliefs that you're all entwined with nature and you know when you die you're kind of returning in one form to nature i mean they're burying bodies in their fields and chopping people up and putting planting them with the cabbage harga yeah Yeah. but i it felt natural to me i didn't think it was it didn't take me out of the movie all right Uh, so maybe maybe this is a better example is that when jack rayner before he runs into the murder shed he turns around and he sees like the flower bed that everybody's talking about and like in the flower bed that Pele was planting is like this fucking leg just like sticking right. out. It's got a rune drawn on it. It's like, come yeah, on. Like, are you serious? Like, they're just going to leave. Ass. Oh, come on, dude. Yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> it's part of a ritual, man. All right. So you can't you, you have to take you're you're the outsider here at seeing their culture from you know, your Western viewpoint and your Judeo-Christian <laughs> viewpoint. And of course that's going to look weird, but at least they put a rune on it to kind of give it some, that it was some kind of spiritual thing. I want to clarify this because we are talking about a movie about religion and everything like that. Like I was raised Judeo-Christian. My parents raised me as like a strong, staunch, like Christian conservative, but like I'm an atheist and I walked away. I keep saying like, the best the best explanation of becoming an atheist is because i read the bible cover right. to cover and the moment that i read the bible cover to cover i realized that i had to be an atheist because this shit doesn't make any sense so part of this like reading of this movie for me was watching these religious rituals and coming from that standpoint not that i'll ever understand paganism or these people's specific religion but like it, it's really hard for me to become attached to this because of my standpoint as an atheist but also part of it is is that I'm watching it as like a spectacle piece, right? Like how fucked up these religious people are going to be in order to get what they want or what they think that they deserve or that they need for their religious ritual. Sure. Yeah. I just was saying from, I mean, our culture, our Western culture, it's based a lot on Judeo-Christianity. Now it's shifting towards, you know, scientific beliefs, if you want to cause. Is it? I mean... (laughs) Like half the people in this country don't identify with any religion and it's even stronger with you yeah. know, younger people. So we'll see what I liked about it and what it made it believable to me is despite these Swedish people like murdering people and everything like that, but you can tell that they believe in their convictions and they have a really strong community about them and there's no sinisterness behind what they're doing. <laughs> it's all part of how they live and how they understand the world. And so you need the Pele character to kind of guide you through that. Do you view that though as like textually? Because at the cliff scene, you know, like everybody freaks out for a second because they're like, oh my God, they're fucking throwing people off of a cliff while meanwhile christian for instance is standing there like he has fucking indigestion it's like he ate some bad hot dogs it doesn't actually feel like he had seen something terrible happen well that's because his character is a piece of shit so (laughs) i mean i mean all the other villagers kind of stand by passively watching this thing they don't i mean but they're they're waiting for this shit though i mean all the villagers it's the outsiders that are having the reaction right but then this woman comes up to him and tells him that this is the way it's done. Is that why you're reading it in the way that you are? That it, the villagers are like more accommodating toward this kind of shit? Well, yeah, it's their whole belief structure. Their whole like society is built off of <laughs> like ritualistic sacrifice to make their own community stronger. And they believe they believe in that. And you get Pele. Yeah. You know, he he believes staunchly in it. And all the <laughs> other people in the village, you know, they're all for it. The ideas of 
people from the outside seem alien to them. So it's, but then you have I mean, the grad students and they're trying to take it in analytically from this uh, academic perspective, but you know, they're still kind of failing. Right. Because it's all, it's all too much for them. I wanted to bring this up because Ari Aster with Hereditary, it's like this universally acclaimed, really fucking honest, disturbing horror movie, right? And it works for a majority of it. Like for me, there's still some things in the end where I'm like, what the fuck? This is really strange. He's a really, really good actor's director. But for me, this movie in particular, I I wanted to talk about it in like this sort of sense of like this sophomoric effort, right? From like a critically acclaimed director. Like for instance, Neil Blomkamp is like an excellent example of this (laughs) because he did District 9 and District 9 is a fucking insanely brilliant movie. And then he does Elysium, which is just this sort of like, eh, you know, like that that was fine. You know, like uh, there was some violence in it and it was entertaining, but it's not a particularly good movie. And, you know, like even Christopher Nolan, you know, doing Memento and then he did Insomnia and Insomnia is a great movie. It's just not as good. So like with this movie, I really felt like it was the same sort of thing was that Hereditary is a great movie. It's super compelling that he's making a new movie. And then he fucking pisses away Will Poulter's character. And the biggest example that I bring up in this movie is like the moment that he's pissing on the fucking tree of their ancestors, right? Yeah. In no way, shape, or form, even beyond like the artifice of filmmaking, would a character be that fucking stupid to whip his fucking dick out and pee on this tree in the middle of the field? He's just there to get laid. <laughs> Not when there's I mean, like this giant, giant fucking forest of shit around him that he could go and piss in that. He pulls out his dick like right on this fucking tree that's obviously <laughs> surrounded by ashes. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't a very good character. Yeah, but he's a great yeah, actor, dude. Yeah. Will Poulter is a fucking great actor and Ari Aster wasted him on this fucking movie. No, I'll give you that much. <laughs> His character was kind of one-dimensional. Absolutely. But at the same time, the story is about the two main characters more than anyone else. Yeah. And how much time do you really need to spend on uh, an extraneous I mean, if yeah. you have a tertiary character like him and you have a two and a half hour fucking long movie... You got time to explain that shit. You know what I'm saying? I would disagree that the characters don't have subtext like Christian. There's a lot of things he's saying and doing, you know, when he's trying to comfort Danny and all of those kind of things. But you know that he's actually thinking, thinking about something else. Like he's planning on cutting off what's his name? Josh's (laughs) PhD thesis and kind of, stealing the idea for it and turning it into his own he's got all that going on in the back of his mind and i feel that throughout most of his scenes where there's a lot left unsaid and the whole relationship between danny and christian there's so much going on under the surface and they're both with each other more because it they just want to put it off like their breakup until it's an easier time to right. do that for them so but this is this <laughs> is going into the fairy tale trope thing that we wanted to talk about later in the episode the hollywood reporter pointed out that the story of midsummer maps onto fairy tale tropes almost perfectly and that danny is the poor emotionally fragile maiden who travels to a faraway land and discovers her royal birthright christian is the inept prince mark is the jester whose foolishness is his demise josh is the wizard whose quest to acquire more knowledge comes at a deadly cost and pele is the noble knight the servant of the hargo yeah so from a fairy tale aspect it is 
exactly this fucking movie. I mean, Ari Aster wrote it to be a fairy tale as far as I can tell. So that being said, there's been plenty of movies over the years that have like embraced this like dark fairy tale structure, most notably with Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. With this movie, for me personally, it failed in that retailing of like a modern fairy tale because I don't care about any of these characters. I really don't. Even with Danny, as much as I want to like admire her and like attach to her, like it doesn't work for me, man. You know what I mean? Like it's just sort of by the end of the movie, I'm like, I'm glad that Christian's dead because he's a fucking prick. He's a tool. And like Mark is a goddamn idiot because he pisses on the fucking tree of their ancestors. And I don't even care about Josh because like Josh, like he's just a fucking nerd. Like there's nothing about him that like actually attaches us to him. Like the only reason that this movie works for me, honestly, is because of the ritualistic violence. The last movie that I saw yeah. something with like this sort of ritualistic violence really was The Wicker Man. Yeah. The Wicker Man was fucking 47 years ago. You're not acknowledging the the Nick Cage movie then? No, fuck yeah. that, dude. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not acknowledging the bees, okay? I'm yeah. just not doing it. I don't know. I disagree. I could connect with both of the main characters in that what Danny went through and her tragedy and trying to deal with grief. And at the same time, uh, Christian and having to be there emotionally when you're already kind of spent and, you know, yeah. so I could, I could feel that for them. And so I connected with them as characters and I felt like their relationship as it's portrayed was realistic and I enjoyed the catharsis at the end too. So let me, let me back up a second on Danny. I connected with Danny. And like I said before, like my favorite part of this movie is the opening 12 minutes, but this movie structuring itself upon this idea that this woman, while she lost her parents and that's some, and her family. And like, that's something we should attach with 90% of the beginning of this movie is showing her as being this weird needy girl that sort of undermines these dudes bromance between them right and she's always this girl that like thrusts herself in the middle of the shit and like nobody likes her and like jack rayner's character christian is like trying to find a way out and like to his credit you know like even as much as he's a douchebag in this movie like he didn't ditch her when it's like the perfect time to ditch her he's like oh well i'm out you know like this is a lot of shit for me so to his credit like maybe that gives him a little more buying power in that sense but like i attached to her at the beginning but like her being structured after that opening 12 minutes is being like this girl that's like more of an inconvenience for all these dudes by the end of it like I don't know. It undermines that for me, man. You know, like I don't feel as much of her fucking journey as I would have. Well, that's like your opinion, man. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Foreshadowing in this movie is not subtle either. Like the there's one of the biggest moments in this movie right after her parents die, and like it's a couple months later, I think, in the in the title card is saying a few months later, and it's moving into summer from the winter. She's laying in bed, and he comes in and says, like, is she okay? Does she need anything? And she's like, well, I wasn't really sleeping. There's this shot where they turn around, they're looking at her, and she's in the fetal position, and she's right in front of this painting that shows like a little princess in a flower crown in front of a fucking giant bear that's kissing her. That's not clever, you know what I mean? Because when I saw it later in the movie, I was just like, come on. Like, I think it's fun knowing what happens at the end and then seeing all of the incredibly deliberate foreshadowing and imagery. And uh, I don't know, I think it was kind of fun how much he put in there and how they, all of the art, 
artwork that's very well done by the way that oh, I enjoyed. And, uh, I mean every every little piece they show you it's not there for decoration it's there on purpose yeah. to show you what's going to happen even though you don't understand it enough to interpret it yeah but it's literally <laughs> what happens so maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe my opinion is coming off as being detracting too much of that because like this movie the number one thing that it does better than any other movie that I've seen in recent memory is uh, plant these seeds of like very deliberate, not just foreshadowing, but like structuring the story upon, upon things that aren't said. And that's like yeah. the biggest thing in screenwriting is like exposition versus showing what's happening, right? Like yeah. somebody talking about it and explicitly saying it is yeah. not interesting planting the seeds and like showing me through my own mind's eye of like letting the story develop in my head is so much more interesting than actually having somebody just outright yeah, saying. Yeah. I think it uh, it adds to the tension and the intrigue of all the scenes because you're like you see the the painting of the bear and then there's a bear in the cage and <laughs> like uh, are we going to talk about the bear in the cage and the dude's like no it's just a bear and you're like oh so we're going to just not pay attention to that huh <laughs> and ignore that when's that going to come into play? And I mean so, I, I don't want to detract from it from that because I still view Ari Aster as being like an extremely intelligent filmmaker I'm not saying that this movie is a complete god-awful pile of shit, but like it really does suffer for me from the sophomoric effort of like a brilliant director, like I mentioned before with Christopher Nolan or Neil Blomkamp or any number of directors that have done like a great movie and then their second effort was like, you know like it's, uh, that's right when you think about first movies you probably have to realize that they've had this idea in their head for like decades yeah, yeah. i put a lot of thought into it and they make a movie with no idea of how it's going to turn out and it's successful and then they're like oh shit i gotta make another <laughs> movie well, <laughs> i will so. say that something that i appreciated about this movie more than anything else is it's like very specific pace like Ari Aster doesn't give a shit about people's preconceptions about how long a movie is supposed to be or when something is supposed to occur. He lets it happen in the time that he feels as a filmmaker should happen. I mean, if you didn't have, if you have a short attention span, this movie's not going to work for you. But to me, every long drawn out scene is building tension because yeah. you really just have no idea what's going to happen at the end of the scene. By the end of the movie, you're like, well, some bad shit's going to happen. Right. I'm almost right. positive, but uh, I don't know what it is. I think his his pacing is great in terms of building tension. Right. One of my big problems with this movie is like the way the characters interact with each other. So much so that like the scene that sticks out most to me is that scene when they put the pies down and like he goes to bite into his pie and there's a fucking pubie in it. Yep. And like... <laughs> They had just done that like tracking shot prior over that like weird fucking painting or whatever where it shows the entire seduction rune kind of thing. I thought she was going to do an antichrist moment and cut off her clitoris. <laughs> That's what I thought happened in that painting. <laughs> Dude, I don't, I don't mean to get distracted for a second, but I got to go down this. Antichrist <laughs> is one of the most fucking brilliant movies I've ever seen in my life. Like I love Lars von Trier. His movies have gotten progressively weirder and weirder. His new movie, The House That Jack Built, I don't know if you saw it. No. Matt Dillon being a fucking serial killer and it being this enormously misogynistic, horrific gore fest of a film is just, it's incredible. Oh, it really good. is. It's something... I got with Antichrist and... Uh, many of their uh, Lars Van Tier movies, I have been very bored, very bored. And uh, okay. it didn't speak to me. 
<laughs> but I enjoy it. I mean, with Antichrist, uh, I kind of enjoyed it, but a lot of his other movies are too out there that they don't resonate with me. <laughs> Boring. Was did you did you see uh, did you see Nymphomaniac? I tried watching it and yeah. I bored. Didn't give a shit. That was, that, that was something that really that really got to me. But I, I have to say, man, like Antichrist, for some reason, it just sort of like crept under my skin and it stayed there. And like that works for me. You know what I mean? Like something yeah. that like unsettles me with every fucking word that they're saying yeah. and every shot that's happening. And like that movie, by the time that it gets to the place that it does that movie i i have to admit it's one of the few movies where my jaw was hanging open at the end of it yeah no that movie is incredibly fucked up and if you're looking to be shocked by a movie after we've told you all of the the most gory details about it go see it uh, oh it's it's i think even even reading it like when i read about it before and i actually went and saw antichrist like it still affected me on a visceral level and like it was the same thing with midsummer like i had read about all this shit and like there was a lot about it that i had read about about like the cliff scene that had been spoiled in other reviews why do you do that to yourself man like why do you go i don't know man all these used about movies and then go see them it spoils half the fun like i just recently saw mother yeah i don't read reviews anymore prior to seeing the movie <laughs> maybe i'll look at like the the metacritic score or something like that right. just to see kind of what i'm getting into but i'm so glad that i didn't know what i was getting into when i saw mother because <laughs> it was not this insane like biblical allegory that it is but i thought it was about a couple dealing with some drama in their house <laughs> like some annoying house guests and right but it's yeah. so much more than that and it's like so much more intense Dude, and it uh, blew my mind out <laughs> you know from under me when i saw that i don't i don't want to keep glad i didn't I didn't know anything about it. I don't want to keep going down like the tangential thing, but we have to do an episode on Mother because Mother, I went and I saw it. I was doing this movie in Buffalo. I, I knew that Mother was coming out and I'm a huge Darren Aronofsky fan. And I went and I saw it in theaters. And when I walked out at the end of the fucking movie, like my hands were shaking. Yeah. Like yeah. I hadn't had that much of a visceral reaction it to was, something in fucking yeah. years. Yeah, that movie was like a roller coaster for me man so i understand why people don't like that movie and i completely get it and i i know why people have like such a guttural like rejection to it but like for me i thought that was like one of the most brilliant movies i saw in 2017 yeah. why are all of his movies biblically themed now like since Noah, i guess he was I raised know. in that jewish community and like it's it's part of his like textual language as a filmmaker he can't avoid it <laughs> so this leads us to our dumb fuck moment of the movie for me the dumbest part of this movie is her walking up and like just before the weird like spinning scene where she's doing the dancing and shit where the woman is like pouring the weird tea shit into the glass and it's like she picks it up out of the ladle and pours it in and they do that close up and it looks like fibrous <laughs> diarrhea from like a really fibrous shit that you had in the toilet yeah. in the glass and she looks at the woman that's serving her and says, like, what is it? And she's like, oh, it's just a tea to help you enjoy the festival. And she just drinks the whole goddamn thing. Like, it's no big deal. No, she, even whatever, though she dude. just... No. Even though she just had this moment where she had the mushrooms and she had this really bad six-hour trip, which incidentally is really weird that she slept for six hours and they just all sat around like waiting for her in order to wake up in order for the movie to continue. But besides the fact, the diarrhea tea thing like really bothered me because it 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 structures the entire third act of the movie behind the fact that she's high on this shit and like the flowers are moving in her crown and like the flowers on the table are moving and maybe what she's seeing is isn't exactly real and maybe like the fucking sex scene isn't real or maybe she's imagining things 
and it just structures the whole third okay. act of the movie off of this to stupid me, fucking thing. To me, that is the the choice that she makes. And you're talking about subtextual, Gabe, like throughout through that whole scene, you could see her weighing the decision to buy into the community or not, because she's on the edge of going with it and just being lost in the community and accepting it or going back with Christian and trying to escape. And that's <laughs> like the pivotal moment for a character when she's like, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to join this community. I'm going to go with it. I trust them. And it's better than anything else I've got in my life right now. And so to me, her acting is great. And that, that came across very clearly to me that she was making that decision right then and there. So that felt in line to her character yeah. that she would naturally make that decision. Well, I mean, it was, she, had to think about it and there that's that's part of the tension in the scene is that she had to make that choice because she could have refused and gone running away from the community and tried to escape <laughs> at that moment or she could just go with it and go with the flow <laughs> and dance and she decided i don't know she decided man. right then and there that she was going to be part of the community i think when you talk about mark when he like pisses on the tree <laughs> he's written he's written in the way that that would be his character to not give a shit. He's only there for the pussy. <laughs> but at the same time, as you talk about, is there really a person like that in the world? I don't know. And yeah. <laughs> so at the same time, there are probably people like that who, <laughs> who just be like, oh, it's a dead tree. I mean, come on. <laughs> Why would you have a problem with me pissing on a dead tree? One, one part that really brought me out of this movie was the sex scene. It's so stupid leading up to it because there's that moment when him and Danny are standing together and the elder is talking to them and is like, oh, so-and-so wants to see you in their fucking house. And he like even turns and looks at Danny and Danny looks at him and I feel like she knows, yeah. but she just chooses to look past it. Right. I'm like, why? Right. Just like Christian's character, he definitely has objections when he goes to the house. He knows things could go poorly given that people have disappeared recently and the whole community is pissed off about their sacred text being missing but he goes anyways and he doesn't show any reaction when the the town elder tells him that he's a mate for this weird girl that yeah. he doesn't seem to dig too much but yeah. that's i think to me that's part of his character and being kind of an it's, indecisive it's, like pussy really so <laughs> that's another scene that doesn't work for me is when he goes in and he talks to that, that woman elder and she's like, she picked you as a mate. And he's like, yeah, I think I saw a fucking pube in the fucking pie that she gave me. The Eric Cartman pubic <laughs> pie, right? <laughs> Takes a bite out of the pie and he like, he finds his hair in his fucking pie and everybody looks at it and they're like, oh my God. You know, like number one, how did you immediately identify that as a pube? <laughs> and number two, why didn't anybody say anything about his drink? Like his drink is significantly darker <laughs> Then everybody else is drinking. Nobody talked to him about that. I didn't even notice the drink, but now that you say that, I'm like, oh yeah, that <laughs> makes more sense than ever. To me, I put myself in the situation of these characters and I would probably be just as indecisive. I mean, at that point, several, several of them have disappeared. You've seen these ritualistic killings and a dude with a mallet, you know, multiple people with a mallet smash some guy's head in. Right. Going, and, going Ricky O on yeah, somebody. Yeah. But uh, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to piss him off more? You're going to refuse to drink it. You're going to throw a, a shit fit about a pubic hair when you've just seen two people like jump off a cliff. 
while everyone else right, watches. So- I mean, you know, it's not that big of a deal <laughs> at that point. Who cares? I think part of this movie and why it works for me is that they put limits on how far this little community is supposed to go. I mean, they have their incest taboo where, you know, they're making sure that uh, they're not interbreeding too much unless they need an oracle and then they they go for it anyways. But uh, <laughs> they they still have morals and, you know, certain things are still off limits to them, uh, including cannibalism. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, to me, that's what I thought when I saw that scene because he was like focusing in on the pies. I'm like, oh, is that a Sweetie Ton thing? But then you realize it's the pubic hair going uh-huh. on. So uh, that's, hmm. I like this movie in that, there's a lot of mysteries that happen or there's foreshadowing and you kind of have to wonder what's going on. And, you know, you try to interpret all of the the artwork that comes up in the movie and, hmm. you know, it's your interpretation up until it gets explained right. in the movie. And I think it wraps itself up pretty nicely in that fashion. <laughs> So this is another thing is about like the rune, all these runes that are throughout the movie, whether it's the rune stone that the old people, when they slit their hands and then they go and they smear the blood on the rune stone before they jump off the fucking cliff. These runes make all these appearances throughout the movie. And like, even if you don't know anything about runes, you see these symbols around and like, maybe there's like a deeper subtextual thing. If you know anything about runes that you can feel like better about this movie or more fulfilled about this movie. But for me, like when they go into the, the rune scene where she goes up to the rune stone, she slits her hands, the old woman and she smears it on the fucking runestone. That scene took so long to get to the fact that they were jumping off the fucking cliff that by the time that the rune was being smeared with blood, I was like, oh, for the love of Christ, like just fucking jump or do something. <laughs> like, yeah. like it was really getting to me. Yeah. Because like that, that was something that I felt really dragged itself out beyond the point of being like interesting or compelling or whatever and it's the same thing with comedy there's a few movies over the years most of them with seth rogan they have like these comedic moments that are drawn out to the point that like they're already dead but they're still making jokes about it and it's not funny anymore like you want them to move on to the next joke the next scene and it's the same thing with this movie like with the runes and everything like that there was so much in this movie that i was like okay like i get the languidish pace i get this shit but like move on, man. You know, like I already know this fucking information, like move on to the next (laughs) thing. Apparently uh, I was reading an article by someone who interviewed a scholar and the, the runes are actual real runes and they have meaning and it's all about, uh, I don't remember. It's like spring, fall, death. It has, it has a, a structure to all the different runes and they are actually, they do, mean something real but i right you know so i mean that's going only back to one that. in 20 million people <laughs> who see this movie will get that from it. so. it's all part of the the intricacy and the texture of the movie and i think it adds a lot like the set design is amazing and the fact that Ari actually researched a lot of these rituals and a lot of it is kind of based one way or another on pagan rituals right not to say that all of it is or even most of it but there's (laughs) you know there's enough in there to make it feel realistic and yeah he makes a really he makes a really incredibly detailed kind of you know there's set design and everything like that oh absolutely i mean shout out shout out to the fucking hungarian set dressers that fucking lined up all the glasses for that fucking shot when they're looking down from 
Danny's perspective yeah. across the entire and table. All the details are are there, and maybe some of them are obvious after the fact. But when I was watching it, I really didn't know what was coming next, even though it was right there in front of me, <laughs> spelled out. Uh, was there a moment in this movie that you were genuinely shocked? Uh, I mean, when uh, PhD guy, what's his character's name, Josh. When he sneaks into the the sacred oh, and he gets document, head. documents and you see he turns around and he thinks it's Mark behind him and then whack, he gets that impact on the top of his head. Uh-huh. I, yeah, I felt that. I jumped and then... <laughs> When you realize that someone is wearing a Mark mask and leaning over him all creepy, I was like, oh, shit. That's <laughs> fucked up. So that shocked me. With the old people jumping off the cliff, it was pretty obvious to me that that was what, gonna, what was going to happen. Uh-huh. But it just, you know, you still had to sit there and wait for it to happen. You're like, God damn it, just jump off the cliff. I know what's going to happen. But that's part of the tension. Right, right, right. Why it worked for me. All right, so I, I wanted to bring up the uh, the inbred child, right? The uh, the oracle in this movie, because uh, this leads us to a fan theory. The the inbred child moment of it, and everything talking about the oracle, and that like the only oracles that can come out are between inbred people, and, and like they they draw these or they they interpret the runes based on what the oracle is writing in the books. Which I can't remember the name of the books now that I'm thinking about it. But the the inbred child is just like fucking smashing colors all over the page and sliding it around i was like how do you interpret that but besides the fact the inbred child was something that i really really wanted to go down more of a rabbit hole about and i really i mean maybe again it's in the director's cut and i haven't seen it but like i felt like that was something that was so disturbing and so weird that it could have been profited upon so much more than a lot of the shit they populated the second act with yeah I think maybe Ari was doing a little misdirection there and you're expecting the inbred child to play a bigger role in everything <laughs> and he's not. But then I think the, the fan theory is that the Oracle is not the inbred child, but in fact, uh, what's it's Pele. Pele, right? Yeah. Pele, they reference him as having the foresight. Yeah, he has the foresight and the vision to bring all these people here for in the end, you know, they get sacrificed and they mentioned that that was the whole point of the Oracle to begin with. And so you're like, Oh shit is, is Pele the one? Cause like there is that moment, like after the May queen is elected and they put the fucking crown on Danny that he turns to Pele and he's just like, your foresight will not be questioned again. It just didn't, it didn't connect with it as much as if they actually had talked more about like the inbred child and like structuring a little more behind Pele than simply that he's doing these weird line drawings in his book. It's not, it's not the sacred text that yeah. like the Oracle that is the inbred child is like sitting in front of because he's looking at these weird yeah. runes and that elder goes on that fucking long explanation <laughs> of how they interpret this shit. And you just see the Oracle or the, uh, the inbred child like sitting there and like mashing yeah. its hand all over the page and like putting these different colors. And I was like, wait, like how are, wait, hang on. I mean, not that, you know, extreme religious cults and shit like that. Don't do this kind of shit. Uh, I mean, it happens in mainstream religions too. <laughs> I mean, cool. yeah. you know, oh, what's the, the, the Christ shroud. Let's oh yeah. Yeah. The shroud, of, the shroud of turn. It's, they just want to look at ink blots and uh, <laughs> go from there. That's all it is, really. <laughs> because so, because yeah. it makes them feel better about what they're believing. 
yeah i mean the the extension of the theory that pele is the oracle is that he was the one who murdered danny's sister and parents right and like right, ah, right that's a stretch well, like he doesn't yes and no because like oh. here, here's here's the reason why i give more credence toward that theory is because the amount of work that goes into that right like these people i've never been poisoned by carbon monoxide let me say that first and foremost i hope not <laughs> but if there was a couple of garden hoses going into my bedroom. I mean, I thought that was a pretty creative way to kill yourself. Right. Taping like a hose to your mouth. Right. So if, even after you pass out, you're not going to start I'm, breathing I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because this is why I give more credence to the fan theory is it's somebody that would tape duct tape that fucking hose down their throat and like if you look at it when they're when they're going in on that dolly or that dolly shot when they're going into her sister and then they boom up and they go outside of the window when you look at her and like the last thing you see is like this hose stuck in her throat and like this tape around her neck what you what you see is they're dollying in is that on her wrists there's like this duct tape on her wrists i didn't notice the duct tape and for me <laughs> this is bringing this is bringing more credence to that fan theory <laughs> that like pele actually structured this yeah. death of her entire family in order to make her susceptible to the fucking cult yeah. and their influence upon her yeah, and i, I can that, buy that that does make more sense now that you say that i mean because pele he knows knows all about Danny's sister and her problems through Christian complaining about it constantly. <laughs> so if he had the wherewithal to go do that, then right. damn, it's a hard motherfucker right there. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like that makes the movie more rewarding and I'm able to yeah. give that fan yeah. theory a definite deeper credence than anything yeah. else. No, that's pretty crazy. But I mean, with the whole suicide thing, at the same time, when people are really committed to doing that to themselves and they're not dumbasses who like sh just drink Drano and then <laughs> pass out where someone can find them immediately. I mean, there's a lot of planning that goes into it and research and right. realize that uh, she could have done that on her own and set it up to do it to make sure that it got done right. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Absolutely. <laughs> so, I, you know, uh, I want to so, uh, give, give you props on that Drink and Drano reference for those of you that didn't catch it. That's a, a Batman reference. Actually, it was a real reference to a man who I watched like a Dateline on and he drank Drano. Oh my God. He was so distraught by the pain that he ended up in the hospital but had his esophagus and stomach removed. And so he had his lower, in, his, sorry, his upper intestine joined directly to his throat. Right, right, right. right. I remember that guy. Like, yeah, he had to, yeah. So it was under his, his dermal layer. His intestine was under his dermal layer. So to swallow, he had literally like push food down his intestines and he had to eat like 20,000 calories a day to stay alive because his stomach wasn't there. Dude, I, I thought, I thought you were making a reference to Tim Burton's <laughs> movie, but... <laughs> no, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Yeah. But yeah, there's, you know, you hear about the people that botch their own suicides by missing their brainstem or whatever and just hitting their speech center and just disfiguring themselves. I mean, if you're going to do it, you got to do it right, man. Like, don't fuck it up. All right. <laughs> so, so I just, I have to say for a second, Paul isn't condoning suicide. No, no. Uh, He's saying that the people that have tried that have fucked it up royally are these people that we're talking about. I mean, the people that fuck it up probably regret doing it. Oh, absolutely. It's sad when it happens, but... 
it's probably worse when it gets botched. So I felt like when I saw that suicide scene, it yeah, it struck a chord with me because there's been a suicide in my family in the past. Yeah. So and and it felt really realistic knowing that people plan it and are very meticulous when they're really serious about it. And that that scene, like I said, it, it's part of the movie that strikes the most deep chord with me is that first 12 minutes. I mean, all that being said, like my overall reaction to the movie is very much in line with like the user rating. It really is a seven out of 10 for me because it doesn't go deep enough that it just, it doesn't get where it needs to go. But the fact that it languishes over the 148 minutes that it is. It's a movie about grief, Gabe. I mean, yeah, it's going <laughs> to languish a little bit. But, uh, so my opinion is it struck a deep emotional resonance that I wasn't expecting from a horror movie. And it wasn't uh-huh. so much a horror movie as a like character driven drama. And yeah, it struck a resonance right. with me as far as the characters were concerned. And I thought that they obeyed their own directives as the characters, as they kind of unfolded and went through their character arcs. Pretty much all of it was believable and it felt real enough to leave a lasting impression on me. One of the things that this movie really struck with me is it really reminded me of the movie Possession. Possession, it it holds this like special place in my memory because when I first saw it and I started reading about the film history of it, the central performance of that, it's it's something that it's so shocking when you're watching it that it feels like something that you shouldn't be watching. And it's something that's almost exploitative. (laughs) Audition is the same thing. I remember that like the first time that I saw Audition, this is an excellent example of the slow burn horror film. It was before the time of streaming and I remember watching the IFC channel and I had just started watching like this whole retrospective that IFC was doing on Katashi Katana. Mm-hmm. We had seen his gangster film that he did called Fireworks yeah. and I had seen that movie. I-, I thought of it as that. Like I had seen Kikajiro and I had seen a bunch of his other movies and I was watching this movie called Audition which is Takashi Miike's 1999 absolutely brilliant horror fucking yeah. movie and I was watching it and for the first two acts of that movie it's just this like simple love story where he's trying to find this new woman after his wife died years earlier and he falls in love with this actress and it's this really sweet movie and there's this moment where she's sitting in her apartment the phone's ringing and you're like wait a minute like something's off with this girl and you see this canvas bag in the back and it rolls over and it makes this like roaring noise <laughs> and i was yeah, like uh, holy yeah. shit what movie am i yeah, watching like, yeah, what is yeah. This? that is a great movie for sure this is the reason why slow burn horror works for me is that if you do it right it can be one of these movies that you'll remember forever yeah like i'll always remember audition i'll never forget the first time i saw a takashi Miike movie ichi the killer is a brilliant movie uh, yeah. happiness of the katakuris is mm-hmm. a brilliant movie visitor q is probably one of the top 10 fucked up movies yeah. i've ever seen in my life it's something that i'll never forget yeah yeah what's the other one gonzo, gonzo. Is that what it's called? yeah gonzo yeah. oh dude yeah. Gonzo with like the sex scene and the dude like oh so in case you don't have anything to do for the next oh I don't know four weeks you know go check those out right if you're sitting around because of the coronavirus yeah. if you want to see if you have a strong gag reflex go check those movies <laughs> going back to slow burn movies you yeah. know there's like the witch oh yeah. when the the goat starts talking like raise the hackles on the back 
my neck for sure. Oh <laughs> my god! Oh yeah. my god! Yeah. You know, you you and I had talked about this previously. Is it like horror movies that actually got the hair on the back of your neck to stand up? And I remember that when you and I went to go see The Descent in 2005, I remember that like we were sitting there in the theater, and the moment when they turn on the night vision and they pan over and they see the crawler <laughs> over Sarah's shoulder. <laughs> hair yeah, on the back just, of my i remember when you're talking about day, that that made made the blush red the blood ran in your head then. yeah that was great <laughs> you think the swedes have some issues like i don't know they seem to make uh good horror I movies know, i mean being locked up all winter probably doesn't help <laughs> <laughs> There's another horror movie that I really wanted to bring up in this vein. It's that movie Frozen. It's not the fucking Disney movie that you're all <laughs> thinking of, where it says "Let It Go" and do you want to build a snowman or fuck a snowman or whatever the name of that song is. I'm sure is. you could find whatever <laughs> lyrics you want on the internet for that. So. <laughs> and it's about this group of skiers that gets stuck on a ski lift and these people are stuck up there and they're trying to figure out how to get down and the temperature is plummeting as it goes into the night and there's yeah. wolves that are coming underneath them i have a problem with how wolves are portrayed in pretty much every movie every hollywood movie out there including that one but i mean the rest <laughs> of the movie was fine you didn't like the gray <sighs> the gray yeah well no it was it was good enough but like oh, Neeson, man, the best best example of terrible movie wolves are the wolves in Day After Tomorrow. Uh -huh. <laughs> These I don't think bringing I don't think bringing like, up I mean, a Roland Emmerich movie is the best way to justify your. I opinion. mean, wolves have uh, wolves have been selectively bred by humans, killing nearly every wolf out there to be incredibly afraid of humans. Like every wolf knows to right. run because that's the only instinct that have kept those wolves alive through their whole genetic history right now and so whenever a movie shows these like horribly aggressive wolves i'm like yeah whatever that's bullshit <laughs> anyways but yeah no frozen that's a fun one uh nice good example of a, a super cheap horror movie that uh it gets to a great level there. it's like open but, water in that yeah. way it was like this weird like subgenre of films where it's people that are like stuck in one situation and they can't move outside of it yeah the one one set wonder kind of movie oh absolutely absolutely <laughs> and th those those i think are the best movies for fucking indie directors to cut yeah. their teeth on dude yeah because they're only concentrating on performance like yeah. i had talked to you about blinter previously with mm -hmm. uh with shay wiggum yeah it's a great movie it only takes place in a fucking convenience store and it's only three characters for the majority of the movie and it's brilliant man yeah. like shay wiggum put his stamp on me forever because of that movie that I'm like, I will watch everything that Shea Wiggum does yeah. because he's fucking great in this movie. Yeah. And that's, that's another great example of like a real fucking horrible body uh, horror movie. You know, speaking of slow burn, one location horror movies, let's talk about the shining for a second here. Oh, uh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, living, living in quarantine for this long, I'm starting to understand Jack Torrance a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think we're all going through our little Jack Torrance <laughs> moments here. But, but, you know, I mean, I had just seen, I had just seen Dr. Sleep not too long ago. Yeah. What did you think of that? I don't know, man. I, like I've read the book and I wasn't all that. <laughs> I didn't care there's, too much for the book. I mean, there's a lot to like about the movie. You know, like it's 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 directed by Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan, he directed this brilliant 
Netflix TV show, if you haven't seen it, it's called The Haunting of Hill House. And there's so many reasons to watch that TV show, but he directed Dr. Sleep. And that was the reason why I wanted to see it is it was like, it's Mike Flanagan. You know, like he really established himself as something special with The Haunting of Hill House. But like the movie overall, it's sort of like, eh, you know, like whatever. Maybe it's because of the source material. I didn't read the book. Going back to The Shining though, like The Shining is like a brilliant slow burn movie for so many reasons, but it's not least of all because of Jack Nicholson's performance in that movie. Oh, yeah. Like, let's be honest. Like if there's anybody else, literally anybody else that Kubrick had ever worked with, <laughs> would it have worked? Probably not. It wouldn't have. Like it's just because of Jack Nicholson's performance that that movie fucking works. Well, uh, I wouldn't take away from uh, Duvall's performance either. What's her first yeah. name? Shelley. Shelley Duvall. Duvall. Like she's so screechy and annoying on that movie that, <laughs> that I feel, you know, some sympathy for Jack Nicholson and having... Mm. <laughs> Having to be stuck with her that whole time. To bash her head in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, I think he doesn't want to hurt her, Paul. He just wants to bash her head right to fucking. Talk about foreshadowing and a lot of hidden imagery in that movie. I mean, have you seen uh, Room 237? Yeah, it's a the documentary. documentary. That, yeah. Oh, man. That puts forth like one of the greatest, like, film conspiracy <laughs> theories i've ever heard of never noticed it until i i saw room 237 and it's a, when when the kid is playing in the hallway with his truck he's wearing the apollo 11 sweater <laughs> stands up and walks over to the door and you know, you're like oh shit that is so deliberate but you know, what does it mean? Does it mean that Kubrick, you know, filmed the, the Apollo 11 landing uh, in a studio in Area 51? I don't know, man. Many things. It's like so intriguing when they point it out and it's, it's so deliberate. And, you know, I think a lot of that was Kubrick leaning into yeah. it. He could just be fucking with people. You never know. So. <laughs> all right. Well, all that being said, I, you know, you and I talking about Mother, I feel like it's one of these movies that we really should talk about. Yeah. Because mother, you know, I never I never really talked to you about it. I remember that like I texted you about it, but like we never really had a conversation about it. Yeah, I never and I, mean, I didn't watch it until just recently. I'd been putting it off for a while, so but <laughs> I think finally. the mother I think the mother really is something that we should talk about and like maybe after mother we can mix it up and not talk about horror movies for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> I want I want to talk about some samurai movies too. I've seen <laughs> like way too many samurai movies. So You know, I want I want to talk to you about Twilight Samurai cuz Twilight Samurai is well like one of my favorite fucking samurai. Oh right, man, I haven't uh, I don't think I've seen that one. Oh dude, you know like everybody talked about like uh, 13 Assassins, yeah. right? Like Takashi Miike's mm -hmm. movie and it's fucking brilliant, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to take away from 13 assassins. Yeah. But nobody talked about the twilight samurai. And that was one of those truly great samurai flicks that is just is like that stripped down. Recent? The, uh, 2001, okay. I think. But like uh, nobody, nobody really talked about that movie. And it's a fucking shame because the guy that starred in the last samurai, I'm going to fuck this up. And I apologize to any people that speak actual Japanese, but Horiyuki Sanada, like the guy that played like the red warrior in uh, the last samurai, right? The guy that took like six fucking bullets <laughs> and he like pulls out his samurai sword and he spits the blood out and keeps going. Yeah. He's fucking brilliant, dude. And he's the star of this movie and it's this stripped down fucking Akira Kurosawa came back to life yeah. for 10 fucking yeah. minutes in nice. order to make this movie type shit. Like it is absolutely insane. And like Twilight yeah. Samurai is one of my absolute favorite movies that yeah. should be talked about more but isn't. 
because everybody talks mm-hmm. about 13 assassins oh, or right. like shogun assassin or blade of the immortal oh okay that has vampires in it though right yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a great fucking samurai slash vampire flick though man <laughs> like he he's a, he's a truly great director and i want to get into a later episode with talking about specifically takashi Miike. yeah we should do an episode specifically yeah, just about him because not yeah. just about one movie because his breadth of movies is like so amazing. Uh, what does he make? Like four a year? Or something oh, dude, it's unbelievable. Like I mean, yeah. on IMDb, he's got like 110 titles or something like that of just films that he's made. What does that say about Japanese culture that he's one of their most prolific directors? I, <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. I mean, Visitor Visitor Q is one of those movies that I remember when I was at UNM, my film teacher that was talking about, like, I did this horror movie class, right? His name was James Stone, and he did, like, a movie a week, right? And he would do, like, the movie, and, like, the next week, for the first 30 or 40 minutes of the class, he would talk about just the movie, and he'd assign you all this reading yeah. and shit like that prior to you talking about it the next week, but then he'd watch the next movie. And I remember that when he was bringing up Visitor Q, it was on the syllabus, and I was like, oh my god, fucking to Gosh, Amike, I can't wait for this movie. And I remember that when he talked about Visitor Q the week before, he was like, okay, next week, I'm showing you a movie by Takashi Miike. If you guys have seen any of his movies, you know what to expect. But if those <laughs> of you who haven't seen his movie, he's like, I've seen, I've seen students in this class walk out during the middle of Visitor Q. <laughs> I've had people feel physically ill and want to throw up. I've had people that have not been able to stop laughing during the entirety of it. <laughs> Were you one of those people, Gabe? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah. <laughs> Takashi Miike is just one of these directors that he's so brilliant. And he's one of these guys that should be talked about all the time. You know, he's friends with Tarantino. Suzuki Western Django yeah. is like one of the most insane movies that's ever been made. Yeah. But he uh, he's just one of these really weird. And he more than anybody. I mean, honestly, let's be honest. Like he more than anybody is an auteur director. Oh, yeah. He gets to do what he wants, whenever the fuck he wants, however yeah. the fuck he wants. And nobody steps in his way. Yeah. And that I think is extremely amazing for a man that's done over a hundred fucking feature films. Yeah. He can still do that kind of shit. But I mean, all that being said, we're going to talk about mother next week and we hope that you guys join us until next time. This is Gabe Chavez. Paul Shandle right here. <laughs> Signing off. We'll catch you guys next week. All right, all right. Thanks for listening guys.